I pay homage to the Buddha. I pay homage to the Dhamma. I pay homage to the Sangha. Well, from the sound of things, uh, a lot of people are under the weather today. Uh, I wish I had prepared a talk about sickness, but I, I didn't know. Uh, so that's not what my talk is about today. Although it would be a good topic, because that's one of the things that's very much guaranteed in the human condition. Old age, sickness, and death. Not just a matter of if, but when, you know. Uh, so, last month I, I gave a talk about acrobats. There was an acrobat and his assistant, Medicathalika, uh, which is a Pali word that means frying pan. So this acrobat and his, his assistant frying pan. Uh, today, I'm going to talk about a farmer instead. And not just, uh, not just any farmer. This is actually someone from a, a particular family, uh, an important family, Bhadadvaja. So the Bhadadvaja family in the, the Pali canon are of a family of Brahmin. And if you don't know anything about the, the caste system in India, the Brahmin are at the, the very top, the, the very tippiest top of society. You know, the untouchables being at the very, very lowest, and you have this hierarchy of people and, and how they fit into society. And the stories surrounding this Bhadadvaja family is actually pretty interesting and sometimes funny because you have all of these people that are very, very sure about their place in society and who they are and how things work, and each time the Buddha proves them wrong, and then they end up becoming monks, almost without fault. They at very least uh, become a disciple. Most times they become monks, and sometimes they even become arahants. And so there are a few different examples, most of them out of the Sanyutta Nikaya in the Pali Canon, but you can also find some in uh, like the Kudika Nikaya and like the Sutta Nipata. You have different versions of some of these stories. And... Uh, as I said, some of them are, are pretty funny. You know, uh, there's one where there's a particular Bhadadvaja, someone from this family, and uh, his wife is secretly a disciple of the Buddha, right? And he doesn't know this, but one day she stubs her toe. And her exclamation for stubbing her toe is, I take refuge in the Buddha. And he, and he says, what? And he's very shocked. And, uh, and she has to confess, like, yes, I've been a disciple of the Buddha for a while now, and he says, well, I'm going to go talk to this guy and, you know, give him a piece of my mind and show how wrong he is. And she goes, well, uh, good luck. And then he goes off to go talk to the Buddha, and, you know, he, he comes off with all of his Brahmanical education and says all this stuff, and the Buddha gives a, a pretty swift retort, and at the end, this guy goes, hey, I think this Buddha guy is onto something, and decides to become a disciple right then and there. And then you have other Bhadadvajas. One is with matted hair, you know, and he's, he's got all this tangled hair and he comes across the Buddha and the Buddha gives him instru instructions on how to detangle his mind, something maybe a little more useful. And then you have Bhadadvaja the Pure who's doing these fire rituals and is very concerned with his own purity, but not only in terms of the rituals he's performing, but his caste, like, I'm so pure because of my caste. And the Buddha has to tell him, well, you know, purity isn't based on how someone's born. Purity is based on someone's actions, their virtues. 
And so it's the Buddha being critical of the, of the caste system in terms of what people can accomplish. Because for the Buddha, anyone from any caste system was able to follow the path to its fruition and become enlightened, become arahants. He comes across more Bharadvajas, all these guys, because they're all in this one uh, part of India, and he goes there quite frequently. It's one of the Buddha's resting places where he'd be with his monks, and near, I think it was like the squirrel's feeding ground, one of those places. They all have good names like that. And he just kept coming across these guys, these, these Brahmins, so, so sure about where they stand in life. And each time the Buddha reveals to them that maybe things aren't the way they, they think they are. So the Bharadvaja I'm going to be speaking about today is Bharadvaja the farmer. And so the story takes place uh, during the time of year in India when people start plowing to, to sow seeds. And it's a big celebration because, you know, it's breaking of the earth. Everyone's going to start farming. They get all these plows. And Bharadvaja being a part of this big Brahmanical tradition, he's got all these workers there with him, all these people, and they're all celebrating. And he's got 500 plows all ready to go and all sorts of people there with him. And it's this big, big, huge event. And on that day, the, you know, the Buddha uh, goes off for his alms round. And so he, he collects his bowl, he collects his robe, puts it on, and starts walking. And then he comes across this big gathering of people with Bharadvaja. And he's beginning to distribute food to the people who've, who are there for the celebration, people who are there working and people who are there to celebrate. And uh, the Buddha sees this and he's got his begging bowl. And the Buddha goes, hmm, maybe. And he steps aside to wait for the distribution of food. Bhadadvaja sees the Buddha there alone, and he looks and sees this mendicant there, this samana, someone who's, you know, thus gone, has gone into seclusion, gone to live, you know, the life of renunciation, the, to walk away from all householder things. And Bhadadvaja, being this big Brahmin who's also a farmer, tells the Buddha, you know, Buddha, I think you're so lazy. See, I sow... And I reap and I eat my food. You know, I plow the earth, plant the seeds, do all these things. And then this is the food I eat. You know, what about you? And the Buddha says, well, it's so funny you mention this. I'm a farmer too. Right? And Bharadvaja steps back and says, yeah, I don't think so, Buddha. I don't see you here with, with a plow. I don't see you here tilling the earth. You tell me you're a farmer. Well, in what way are you a farmer? And the Buddha responds in verse because it wouldn't be the Pali Nikayas, it wouldn't be the Sutta Pitaka if there weren't some poems in there. So I'll give you your, your dose of digital Dharma today because once again, all my books are still put away. So here we are, digital Dharma. So Bharadvaja says, you claim to be a farmer, but I don't see your plow. If you're a farmer, declare to me, how are we to understand your farming? And the Buddha responds, Faith is my seed, austerity my rain, and wisdom is my yoke and plow. Conscience is my pole, mind my strap, mindfulness my plowshare and goad. Guarded in body and speech, I restrict my intake of food. I use truth as my scythe, and gentleness is my release. Energy is my beast of burden, transporting me to a place of sanctuary. It goes without turning back, 
to the place where there is no sorrow. That's how to do the farming that has the deathless as its fruit. When you finish this farming, you're released from all suffering. So there are a lot of uh, Buddhist buzzwords, let's say, throughout all of that. You know, things like energy and, and mindfulness. And it can be real easy to, to become daunted by, by all of these lists of qualities, all these lists of things we're supposed to do. In fact, there's the Bodhipakya Dhamma, which is 37 of these qualities in different permutations, different forms. And of course, you can spend time memorizing them, but really it's all just a matter of cultivating them, working on them. And you see this list and it's like, wow, like how do I even start? What do I start with? You know, and the thing is, you know, o over time, my relationship with these qualities have, have changed. You know, I, I have a very academic mind. So at first I was trying to memorize every list. There's seven of this, four of that, nine of this, 12 of these. And there's nothing wrong with, with memorizing. It's actually very useful. It, it's a, indeed actually part of the training. You know, back in the Buddha's time, this was all, uh, you know, uh, an oral tradition. So everyone memorized things and was able to recite them. But that's really just, in some ways, the, the beginning. And in some ways, just an aspect. What's always more important is putting them into practice. And, uh, and we start slow. In fact, this is why I love this example of how the path is, you know. The, this word we, we use, uh, bhavana, right, as the cultivation of the path. I've always enjoyed, you know, chitta bhavana, you know, cultivation of the mind. And, you know, uh, let's say all, we can also say sila bhavana, you know, cultivation of, of virtue, you know. And there's different ways of translating bhavana. Some people just use it as just a, a word for meditation. Some use it as training. But I've always liked cultivation because I've always liked that image of someone being a farmer or a gardener, like really tilling and working things, working things out, pulling out weeds, planting seeds. And, and here in this particular sutta, we see the Buddha referring to the path in the same way, as one who's gardening, one who's farming, one who's breaking up the earth and planting seeds. And it's such a great example for the path because we, we see all, the, all these things that we need to do. And it can seem quite daunting, but they're all things that need to be done in their time. Right? Just like we have to wait for sowing season, we have to wait for the growing season, and then eventually the reaping season. These all, these all come when, when the time is right. And so a part of this, even though it isn't overtly listed there, is, is having patience the importance of patience on the path, that we have all of these qualities, and these qualities seem very, very daunting, and they seem hard to work on. Let me tell you, the restriction of food, oh, it's hard for me to talk a whole lot about that one. But to be fair, if I wasn't a Buddhist, I'd probably be much larger than I am. I'd be one of those guys on a rascal scooter getting around, you know. So everyone works with these things on the, you know, at, at, at wherever it is they are, from wherever it is they start. But these qualities can seem quite daunting, but really, truly, we just start with one thing, one little thing in this moment right here, in this present moment. And, and these rewards that come, these fruits, they come a little bit at a time, always just a little bit, always a little bit, until we have that big harvest season when we eat that final fruit of liberation. But until then, we're just cultivating, working, working, working on these things. And that's, that's something beautiful and, and profound to me that 
these qualities that seem so vast and so, so difficult are really qualities we all possess. You know, in Buddhism, we talk about things that are sankharas, right? Things that are uh, fabricated, uh, for, uh, you know, formed. There are parts of formation, things that are constructed. And that's what the world is made out of. All of these things that are, that are dependent on other causes. And so these things are, are fabrications, things that, that we construct. And truthfully, even all of the things that we work on, like mindfulness, effort, energy, and so on, all of these things are things we already have within us. And whatever small amount, maybe the amount of a seed, something we plant, something we nurture, something we water and fertilize, so that it begins to grow into something much larger. Energy is something really important in the path, you know. And uh, energy is something that, that gets overlooked, I think, sometimes. Uh, you know, especially the way Buddhism is, is talked a, a lot about in the West. We think of, of, of meditation as this, this very passive thing where you just relax into the present moment and you just let go of all your worries. And really, when you read the suttas, that's not really what the, the Buddha had in mind, you know, in, in the Pali Canon. That's not exactly what we see. You just give in to the present moment. If anything, we're always supposed to be looking at the present moment and seeing what we can do to make tiny little improvements, tiny gains in skillfulness. And not in any, you know, tiring sort of uh, hard way where we're always criticizing ourselves and, and it's, it's not a, a harsh thing. You know, I think sometimes we can, we can hear the, the aspects of mental training and view it in that way. It's something very, very harsh that we have to kind of beat ourselves up over it. But oftentimes, it's, it's something very, very gentle, very small. You know, for me, my, my meditation practice is mindfulness of breathing. And, you know, that can seem very complicated because when you read that particular sutta on Anapanasati, there's these 16 contemplations and there's these 16, some people call them steps, and that's probably not the right way to look at it, but you have these 16 contemplations that are very, very, like these very subtle, almost mystical things you're working on, like like release and letting go, and and uh, you know these other qualities of being uh, you know mindful of the entire body and knowing the breath as it arises and passes away. But one of the other things that's overlooked is simply becoming sensitive to pleasure, sensitive to rapture, sensitive to joy. And that's something that when you do it the right way is so soothing, so, so relaxing. But it's something that you have to constantly be, be monitoring, mo monitoring and, and looking at in this moment. How can I be at ease in the body in such a way that I can let go a little more, a little better? And then you keep checking in in this present moment again, again. How can I be more relaxed? How can I breathe in such a way that it's easeful and, and peaceful, relaxing and pleasurable? And that actually requires energy to do. Even though it sounds a lot like, like just letting go, it's something very different. Because letting go is just letting go. You, you can just stare at a wall for 40 minutes if, that, if that's what you're going to do. But if you're going to try to cultivate things like piti and sukha, you know, uh, rapture and, and joy or rapture and happiness, then th these are things that need to be cultivated, like those seeds that need to be planted and watered and nurtured. And we have to be able to watch all the time and look for them <sighs> and find them. And that energy, you know, the, the Buddha refers to the energy as that beast of burden doing this, this hard work. 
And energy often comes in, in the form of, of keeping ourselves motivated, motivated to continue following the path, motivated to do the work, even when it seems daunting and even when it seems hard. And the thing is, over time, it seems less daunting and it seems less hard. And these lists of all of these words and qualities become uh, less intimidating, let's say. And, and so when, when I look at, at these kinds of, of passages where, where the Buddha is talking about this cultivation, you know, we can always look for, for different ways of, of approaching the path, different ways of working on our, our virtue and our wisdom, our virtue and our discernment. And we can see things here where the Buddha says, I restrict my intake of food, you know, and here I, I make a joke about, you know, being a, a bigger guy that likes food, and, and I do. But when the Buddha talks about food, he, he, he's not always talking about, like, the physical food we, we put in our mouth. He oftentimes is talking about that, but he's also talking about the various ways we entertain the mind, the, the different food or nutriment we give our minds. And it's real easy, in, in, you know, even in the Buddha's day, but especially now, to really fall into nourishing our minds with stuff that's really not all that nutritious or all that nourishing. We often get into, into things in, in our modern lives that uh, distract us from, from the work we could be doing. And I understand that using this word uh, work can feel a bit, um, again, like that, that kind of tiresome feeling like, man, I got, I got all this work to do. But it's, it's more than just work the way we think of work, like, you know, this nine to five thing you clock into. It's really this, this thing that you're undertaking for your permanent happiness, your permanent joy. You know, this, this deathless that the Buddha promises us is something that will fill us with so much happiness and so much joy and so much contentment. But... We have to make these little, little steps, these little things that we do. And we see it right away. One thing that I find very beautiful about the Buddhist tradition is that the Buddha tells us his teaching is good in the beginning, good in the middle, good in the end. Which means that the moment we start working on these qualities, working on energy and mindfulness and discernment, virtue, the moment we start making these changes and giving energy and, and effort to, to these changes of becoming more skillful with our, our body, our mind, our speech, all forms of actions, we begin to see some release of suffering. It's a gradual path. No one plants seeds and has them grow in a day. No one gardens for a day and comes back with huge, giant ears of corn, pomegranates, avocados. And man, in California, don't we wish we could have avocados that easily? No, it's something that, that takes time, something that, that takes effort, something that, that is a kind of work. But it gives us so much food, so much things for us to, to take in and, and use as our nourishment, use as the foundation for further practice. This has been something that, that I've been working on a lot recently because, you know, before it, it was very easy for me to kind of get into a slump in my practice. You know, I've been meditating for a really long time now and 
studying Buddhism for a really long time now. And it can get real easy to get into a rut where, where you think you know what the path is and you think you know what the practice is and you think it's this thing you just kind of you just kind of grind at until one day you finally find some kind of happiness. But in the meantime, it's it's misery. You know, you sit down and meditate and your knees start hurting, your back starts hurting, you know, you start slouching and slumping and you do this thing day in and day out and you start to wonder where, where the benefits are. But I have found as I've, I've kind of pushed past that wall that when you have those moments, it's often because you're not practicing in the right way. At least I wasn't. Because I should be in this moment finding ways to nourish myself, give myself stable food that is what the Buddha would call harmless, blameless, something that's not dependent on, on others or other things. A happiness that's only dependent on my own efforts, my own training, my own cultivation. That if I'm really looking for sukha, happiness, I'm not going to find it outside, not in any stable way. Whatever food on my plate I, I'm enjoying, I'm either going to eat to the point where I'm sick and it's not going to be enjoyable anymore. Or it's going to be gone and I'll wish for another piece and if I have another, it's the same thing. Or, you know, uh, going to the movies. That's one of my favorite pastimes. I love watching movies. And the movie always ends, no matter how good it is. And then I re-watch them. There's probably about five movies I've seen over and over and over again. And even though I own the DVD, if I see it on cable, I'll just watch it on cable. If I see it streaming somewhere, I'll watch it there anyway. Even though I've got that DVD right there, there it is. Ooh, look. And it's this particular movie again. It's always something, something like this, something that... We try to enjoy that that's not, not lasting, not permanent, and dependent on other things. If that DVD breaks, well, that's it. And if I can't afford my streaming service, well, that's it too. How do I enjoy this movie that brings me so much happiness? But I can cultivate happiness that's not dependent on other things. I can turn inward and examine what the Buddha called this fathom-long body, because there's so much there to see, so much there to find. When we go over the whole seven factors for awakening, and I'm not going to go through all of them, but we do find things like, like concentration, we do find things like, like mindfulness, investigation, and these are qualities that seem very dry and seem very scholarly, and there are people who definitely approach the path that way. It's, this big uh, philosophical effort, you know, of finding the, the good life, you know, the, the good way of being, you know, what Greek philosophers would call evdemonia, having good spirits. Uh, but really, these things aren't as dry as all that when we really start to look at them. You know, take mindfulness, for example. Mindfulness is one of those tools the Buddha says he uses in his farming. Well, what is mindfulness and how do we cultivate it? A lot of the ways people talk about mindfulness now, it's, it's something that uh, is very generic. You know, mindfulness is just being aware of the present moment. And that is one aspect of mindfulness, to be sure. But there's this whole other aspect of mindfulness. You know, the, the word in Pali is sati. And sati has this quality of, of remembering or keeping something in mind. And truthfully, one of the things we keep in mind 
is the Buddhist teachings, the, the Dharma, the Dhamma. Something that we keep in mind in this, in this moment right here. We recollect the Buddha's instructions. Even if it's just the Buddha's instructions on meditation. So again, if I'm doing Anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing, I'm constantly reminding myself to stay with the breath. That's true. Watching the breath come in, watching the breath go out, knowing if it's short, knowing if it's long. But also, I'm trying to recollect what the Buddha tells us about skillful efforts. Am I so, so, so concentrated, I'm racking my body with stress and tightness, and I'm starting to sweat from this effort, and then meditation becomes something I couldn't possibly enjoy, and I give up after, you know, 20 minutes or so? Or am I so kind of relaxed and giving into sloth and torpor that I just sort of sit there thinking about what I'm going to do for lunch for 20 minutes, and then the meditation's over? Or am I using that energy, that effort, to really keep myself there, collected, mindful of the task at hand, which is to grow in skillfulness, to grow in these qualities? And if I'm looking for something like pleasure, and if I'm looking for something like happiness, how do I cultivate that? How do I generate that right now? How do I focus on that? How do I plant those seeds? And how do I water them? One way is the breath. That's the way I use not everyone has to do that. There are many, many forms of meditation that the Buddha taught. In fact, the whole satipatthana, what people call the, the, you know, the foundations of mindfulness or the establishings of mindfulness, however you want to translate it, these are all ways of, of meditating. And some of them are pretty strange to us Westerners and kind of hard to do, you know, like contemplation of death. The Buddha would recommend people to go off and and sit at graveyards and, and sit at charnel grounds and contemplate how the body disintegrates and falls away. But there were also other things, you know, of, of turning inward and, and looking at the way our mind seeks out pleasure and happiness and what it grasps at. You know, we talk about these three unwholesome roots of greed, hatred, and delusion, and we talk about them sort of like they're boogeymen, things to be afraid of, like, you know. Oh no, not greed, not hatred. But the thing is, those are things that, that, that we have to look at. How do we cling? How do we grasp? How do we hold? And when we look at it, we can, so, we can see, ah, here's this thing I'm clinging to. This form of happiness, that when I really look at it, is not a skillful form of happiness. It's only going to lead to my dissatisfaction, my disease, stress, and suffering. But here's this other one. Ah, this one's better for me. This one's more stable, something I can rely on because it's not dependent on anything else but my own efforts. And I can start letting go of this and start grabbing that. And at that stage of our practice, it's actually okay to cling to things that are skillful. We often get so bogged up in non-clinging, of non-grasping, that we think we have to let go of everything all at once. And I would argue that that's not really a skillful way of practicing in the long run. Because then we're not, we're not cultivating anything, we're just sort of letting go of everything. And when you let go of everything, then you have nothing stable for your mind to feed on. And our minds have that nature of feeding. Our minds have that nature of needing things to be nourished by. So why not give it something skillful to be nourished by? Something that will really, really give it something stable to enjoy. 
And we have the whole Buddha Dharma to do that. We have the whole system in place. So when the Buddha is talking about all of these tools for farming, these are tools that we should be using, like mindfulness and energy. Because when we do that, we really give ourselves something reliable, tools that can't be taken away. You know, this particular uh, Brahmin, this farmer, his tools can be taken away from him. You can take away his plow. You can take away his, his oxen. You can take away his farm. Is he still a farmer then? I mean, by trade, I suppose. But he has no tools. But the tools the Buddha has, he carries with him wherever he is. Even if he's just wearing a robe and carrying a bowl and someone says, you're no farmer, Buddha. Where are your tools? All of his tools are mental tools. Things he's got inside. Things that can't be taken away. Something secure. So when the Buddha told this Brahmin about how he farms and how it leads to the fruits that are deathless, the fruits that lead to permanent happiness, the Brahmin was taken aback. He says, wow, that's amazing. You're a farmer after all, Buddha. Here, let me give you some food. And this Brahmin pours a big bowl. He fills this big bowl with, uh, with milk rice. And he hands it over to the Buddha. And he says, here, Buddha, enjoy this. You're a farmer like me. Enjoy this food. And the Buddha says, actually, I can't eat that. And the reason why was because this was a Brahmin who had been chanting and doing all of these ceremonies for the breaking of the earth and the sowing and everything and doing all of these ritual efforts. And the Buddha says, well, actually, you know, someone who's a Buddha can't have any food that's uh, had been recited over. Right? One translation puts it as enchanted by spells. Right? Ooh. The Buddha says, I, I really can't eat that. Um, give me some other kind of food or drink and I'll, I'll enjoy that. But that, this, this rice porridge that you've offered to the gods, you know, leave it to the gods. And so this farmer ends up having to pour out the rice into the water, you know, this lake nearby and says, okay. But he returns to the Buddha and says, you know, Buddha, I think I'd like to be your disciple. Like m much of his clan, much of his family, once again, they make that choice. Mm, maybe Buddha, you're onto something. Let me learn more from you. Well, uh, I think I'm out of time. Uh, I hope I didn't ramble too much, and I hope what I said was useful. And uh, something to contemplate over as you all get over your various ailments and sicknesses, from what I can hear. Uh, so, so thank you for being here, and uh, may you be happy, well, and peaceful. Thank you.